Hello, everybody. Welcome to the series premiere of As It Stands, a podcast about politics, policy, and what's going on in the world, brought to you by The Daily Beacon. I'm your host, Hanson Sale. With coronavirus capturing the attention of millions across the globe, and America facing perhaps one of the worst viral pandemics since 1918, an informed and balanced perspective about how to respond and how well we've responded thus far has never been more requisite. Joining me today to discuss the COVID-19 outbreak and how the American economy might be impacted is Dr. Marianne Wanamaker, an associate professor of economics at the Haslam College of Business at the University of Tennessee, Knoxville. In addition to her role at the university, Dr. Marianne Wanamaker is a research fellow at the National Bureau of Economic Research and from 2017 to 2018 served as a senior economist and the chief domestic economist at the White House's Council of Economic Advisors under the Trump administration. She is also a board member of the American Workforce Policy Advisory Board, co-chaired by Commerce Secretary Wilbur Ross and senior advisor to the President Ivanka Trump. Time is of the essence, so let's get started. All right. Hello, Dr. Wanamaker. Thank you for being here. Thanks for having me. Yeah, absolutely. So um, to get started, let's just, uh, I would love to hear a little overview of what you did at the White House, what the chief domestic economist means. I know that's not a common term for uh, the layperson. So if you could just explain a little bit about what you did at the White House. Sure. So the Council of Economic Advisors is charged with weighing in on every policy being considered by um, the executive branch of government that has any implications for the economy. And it turns out that's every policy. I literally cannot name a part of the policy process that didn't come through CEA at some point while I was there. And um, there are only 10 sort of line economists. So even though you might be a specialist in something pretty narrow when you arrive at the White House, by the time you're done, you've had to broaden your portfolio considerably because, um, again, you need to cover literally everything that the federal government does over the course of a year. So I started off um, thinking about mostly just labor market topics, and that included labor and immigration, education, workforce training, those sorts of issues. And as time went on, I started to add additional areas where people needed help or where there was just too much work. And so that included, for example, the opioid crisis, which was a big deal when I was there, still is a big deal, but was a really big policy Mm -hmm. area for us when I was there. And so... Um, So over time, I kind of kept adding things and eventually was promoted to being uh, chief domestic economist, which just meant that I worked with the team who was focused on the domestic side of the house. The other side of the house was the international side, which was mostly focused on trade. Yeah, yeah. So no small role at all. Um, So I want to shift a little bit first. So the first question, um, just talking a little bit about partisanship in times of crisis. Um, so last week, the, the government passed the largest aid package in U.S. history, valued at $2 trillion, um, unanimously in the Senate at a vote of 96 to 0. Um, but it was not without some fairly vicious debate and partisan bickering, yet lo and behold, unanimous. Um, so the rhetorical unity certainly wasn't there, but the vote was decisive. Um, so how would you say this compares to past crises, say uh, 9-11, the 2008 financial crisis in terms of partisanship? 
You know, I think we have been in this narrative for several years now about hyperpartisanship in Washington. And I have been um, very skeptical of that view and I actually remain pretty skeptical of that view. I think America is broken. I don't particularly think Washington is all that broken. Now there, there are moments where we appear to be broken inside, um, inside the Capitol, but I think for the most part, the two sides are, continue to work. Uh, because we continue to have to get things done and the way the way mm -hmm. the government is is constructed you have to work with the other side there's no way to get things through the senate at least at the moment without having um, without having some partnership from the other party mm -hmm. and so that means that when it comes to a situation like this at least in the senate things may be a little bit different in the house but at least in the senate these people are used to working with each other so i'm not at all surprised that there's a little give and take before it comes to the floor but then once it came to the floor the, the unanimous vote doesn't surprise me at all. Yeah, I, and I'm sympathetic to the kind of debate about America being broken, but to what extent do you think the, the rhetorical um, back and forth impacts the way that everyday Americans view politics? I don't place the blame for how everyday Americans view politics on politicians. I blame it on how we consume news media. I think we're probably going to get to that Absolutely. in this podcast at some point, yes. but <laughs> I don't, I don't really think it's a, I mean, yes, there are bad, there are bad actors among the political class, but there have always been bad actors among the political class. I don't particularly think that has changed. I think what's changed is the way that we perceive them and the depth with which we consume news. And are we, soundbite mm -hmm. people or are we substantive people? And the American population has turned into a soundbite population. Breaking news after every commercial break. Um, so I'm going to transition now to get to a little bit of the coronavirus. Um, and just to start things off, what, what, what is, what's the best and worst part of the Trump administration's COVID-19 response in your opinion thus far? Oh, that's a good question. I mean, I think the best response has been, you know, once once they realized what they were facing, so roughly um, the week of uh, March 9th, when over the weekend, the stock market fell apart and the Fed had to intervene to cut interest rates. I think after that, then you saw the executive branch and also the legislative branch wake up. Um, and once they woke up, they did not shy away from going big. So I think that's the best thing I can say is $2 trillion is huge. It's um, more than double what we spent in relief in the 2008 crisis. So it shows that people recognize just how big the, the problem is. So that's the good side. The bad side is, I'm not sure we're delivering that aid in the best way it could be delivered. And I'm mm -hmm. worried about the long-term implications of the way we've decided to address the problem. Um, in particular, we have the way we've addressed it is to go ahead and let firms and their workers separate from each other and then mm -hmm. pick the workers up on the other side with unemployment insurance, which is definitely not the number one choice you would have made Absolutely. if you were thinking about this, right? Absolutely. And, and so a huge part of this, too, will be the supply shortage with medical supplies. PPE is, is the commonly thought of thing. And, and so it did take the Trump administration a while to recognize that this was a crisis. Um, and some would argue that 
um, it was apparent very early on. Um, how much of that blame do you feel lies in the administration or was it inevitable? Would it, been, would it have been taken seriously early on in the first place? Oh, I mean, I think there's, there's clear, I think it's pretty clear that the administration didn't, didn't move on the actual supply chain side of this early enough and even now isn't executing that very well. I don't think there's any question about that. Um, and the, you know, the major concerns I think at this point are that you need to run a communist style government in a country which mm -hmm. hasn't had to do that since World War II. Right. So we we're way out of practice on the federal government running the, the economy. But at this point, we need the federal government to run at least a small portion of the economy in terms of just generating um, respirators. And as you pointed out, PPE, all of that stuff is in shortage. Absolutely. And it sort of touches on a, a cultural part of the United States. A lot of the countries that have dealt with this well so far and a great example is South Korea. Um, you know, those countries dealt with SARS early on um, and are a little more culturally acclimated to accepting some of the day-to-day -day life restrictions um, in order to help mitigate a pandemic. So I think that definitely is a part of it. Um, so I'm gonna move on to a little bit, some more technical things about the, the COVID-19 response. Um, so, one question that has been posed recently is should the Trump administration reopen the Obamacare exchanges for uninsured Americans to purchase health care insurance during this crisis? I know we've, you and I have talked before about the externalities associated with um, health care amid a pandemic. So, so what are your thoughts on that? Well, I think it's important to point out in, a, in the framing of that question, that losing your job is a qualifying event for, for ACA anyway. So, mm -hmm. if, so they don't have to do anything for people who are newly unemployed to jump onto ACA. Um, that doesn't require a policy response. It's automatic that you're eligible. And you're also eligible for Medicaid provided your earnings in the year 2020 thus far are below the Medicaid limit in your state. And because this event happened in March, for many people, they will be below the Medicaid limit in their state. So they may be eligible for Medicaid. And if not, again, losing your job is a qualifying event for ACA. So the people who, who are still not covered after you've taken those two things into account are people who are either in states that didn't expand Medicaid and therefore are caught in the purgatory between having earned too much to qualify for Medicaid, but not enough to qualify for the ACA subsidies because ACA subsidies are built in a way that assumes every state expanded Medicaid. So that's one group of people who are gonna fall through the cracks. And then the other group of people who, for whom there is no current policy solution is people who had already, who were already choosing not to enroll in the ACA and haven't newly lost their job, those people have no way to hop onto, uh, hop onto insurance until open enrollment occurs again this fall. Um, so I'm not suggesting that's not a huge number of people. It is probably a large number of people in this country, but it's not as though every single person who loses their job ends up without health care given our current situation. Yeah, and that's, that's partially why that question, why I asked that question. It's been something that's been in the news recently and has been sort of framed as, um, the Trump administration is being cruel by not reopening the exchanges, and it's it's a different it's it's interestingly framed, but it's a it's a question that's been asked quite a bit. 
Um, another part of, of this question, so some early reports from Iceland um, have said that at least a portion of the COVID-19 cases remain asymptomatic um, throughout the duration of the illness. Um, so how do you feel like that will influence the U.S. response moving forward? Uh, so we've known that for a long time. Uh, we've known that that uh, carriers were asymptomatic since the original, uh, was it Princess Cruise, I think is mm -hmm. what the name of that, Princess Line or whatever. So they tested every person on that cruise ship, uh, all, all who would agree to be tested, which wasn't everybody, it turns out. But all who would agree to be tested and only half of the people who tested positive showed symptoms, were showing symptoms. So we've, this is not new. We've known this. Mm -hmm. um, and so what it means is that I think the mask restriction that people have been talking about in the last couple of days is about to become reality. I think actually the reason that this, contrary to popular you know, media at this point, the CDC has been hesitating on recommending everyone wear masks in public, not because they didn't think it would help. They've known that asymptomatic people are, are transmitting it. That's not the issue. The issue is they do not want to exacerbate the shortages in masks. And they felt like the first priority was to make sure that the medical system had the masks they need. We're not quite there, but we're much closer than we used to be. And so now it seems like a reasonable point to suggest to the general public that you should be wearing a mask when you're outside. Yeah, it's quite interesting. I know there were some, some reports um, that the CDC was planning on recommending masks um, within the next week or so that the CDC has come out and, and denied that report and said that they are not considering that or don't have but, any plans to consider it. But again, that's because they're trying to make sure there's not a run on masks. Mm -hmm. So right? it, it's so it's coming, in my opinion, it's coming, and they're trying to make sure they don't generate another toilet paper situation in this country. Yeah, which is, which is peculiar in and of itself. It is. Uh, so uh, another question that you and I have talked about before, so part of this can be explained by population demographics, um, but why do you think that young people so far seem to be the primary carriers at the moment? In Tennessee, the 21 to 30 age group represents almost double their share of the population in their share of the COVID-19 cases. Um, I don't know for sure. I mean, part of the reason may be that this is the demographic, which is not necessarily taking socially distancing as seriously as they should be. That may be part of it. Um, I think we also at this point don't understand where our testing is breaking down. So there are news reports today suggesting that up to 30% of negative tests for coronavirus are false negatives. Mm -hmm. And we don't, we don't have a population or an age distribution for those false negatives. And so I'm not, you know, we, we don't know. We're not sure that this, this positive test is, is accurate across all age groups you know, um, equivalently, right? So I think we just don't, we don't know enough to know the answer to your question. Although I, I agree with you, I think it's a super interesting one. Yeah, it is, it's quite the interesting thing. And, and I, I mean, it's reasonable to, to think that some of the young people aren't taking um, the necessary precautions and being as serious, but we don't, again, we don't have evidence for that, but um, it doesn't seem, implausible, um, but the numbers thus far seem to be um, consistent with Iceland. Iceland has done some wide testing and, and quite a few young people are, are 
contracting. Um, so it, it is quite an interesting question. So um, one more question before we move on and, and talk about the economic impact of the coronavirus. Um, the last question is, is, do you think that the White House now feels the weight of this moment? I know that there has been um, quite a bit of speculation that a lot of this was based off of polling and, and perception. Um, I feel as though that sort of changed in recent weeks, but, but what are your thoughts? Do you, do you feel they feel the weight of the moment now? You know, everybody that I talk to in the administration is as concerned as you and I are, if not more so. Um, they also, every one of them, you know, live in Washington, D.C., and as a result, they know people <laughs> with coronavirus. Um, so, and, and I can't actually say that for myself. I don't, it, currently nobody in my social network that I know mm -hmm. of is infected, right? But that's almost certainly not true for people who are working in the White House right now, because it is widespread in Washington, and it's widespread within government. Um, because as you know, several politicians have it, their staff has it. So um, yeah, for sure. I think everybody at this point is on the same page. I think we're all on the same team. Um, and I think any suggestion otherwise is just not true. Absolutely. I, I think um, something that I particularly appreciated, um, I, Jim Acosta had, had a spot on CNN where he was talking about um, the president and his response about there's two cruise ships off the coast of Florida who are sort of stranded. No one, no country has let them dock. And, and um, the president was very clear that we need to let those people dock and give them medical care. It's the right thing to do. Um, and Jim Acosta had a spot on CNN where he was like, just talking about how it was very clear that the president cares and doesn't want people to die. And this is a very impactful thing for him. Um, but a lot of times in the popular media, it seems to be put out there that, that Donald Trump is not a human and doesn't feel empathy. But I, I felt like that was a very um, sort of prescient response um, and that seems to be an indication that it, it's being taken seriously. Um, so we'll move on to the economy um, because I think this is going to be the most interesting part. Um, so the chairman of the Federal Reserve, Jerome Powell, recently gave an interview with the Today Show where he said, quote, there's nothing fundamentally wrong with our economy. Um, this gives credence to the debate that life will return to normal as soon as this is all over, that the economy can just simply be turned back on without much long-term impact. Um, but plausibly and most likely there will be some significant economic impact. I mean, large amounts of wealth will be destroyed, savings liquidated, people will be behind on mortgages, rent. Um, so to what extent do you agree with that argument of the economy will rebound and, and do you believe it's possible that this could just be a, a two quarter recession? Um, I mean, I definitely think it's possible this could just be a two quarter recession. But I think we've got to think about it a little bit differently to make that, that the case. Um, so let me tell you what I think the first best federal solution is, and then I'll describe how far we are from that. So I think the first best federal solution would be everybody effectively freezes in place. So everyone remains employed, even if their employer's not, act, not open 
Mm-hmm. And the federal government provides a wage guarantee that is up to something like 90% of what people were earning before. Okay. So you go to work. If your hours have been reduced, then we'll, we'll top you off up to the 90% limit. Or if your employer is closed completely and you're at home, we will still pay you 90% of what you traditionally had earned at that employer. That's the first best solution. It keeps everybody attached to their employer. You can put the economy on ice for six weeks, six months, however long you need to. And then when you're done, you unfreeze. No one's missed a mortgage payment. No one's missed food. No, you know, no one's behind on anything. And that's not what we've done. And, and I agree that it's hard to do that. Okay. So I'm not suggesting mm-hmm, that this mm-hmm. is a wholesale failure, but what we've done is we have detached people from their employers and we have largely executed the relief for Americans through the UI system. Now everyone's also getting this $1,200 check, which is fine, but if you're unemployed, that's not going to cut it. Right? So you're largely depending on the federal government to provide this backstop. But in order to get the backstop, you have to, you have to disassociate from your employer. And in disassociating mm-hmm. from your employer, you've now jumped onto this federal program, which is providing super generous UI benefits. Now, I happen to think those super generous UI benefits are warranted, but it also means that when this is all over, many people will be earning more on UI than they would mm-hmm. have earned than they would earn at their job if they went back to it. And so you're going to have a lot, a lot of people for whom it's not the, the smart economic decision to go right back to where they were because their household income is going to fall substantially. And this mm-hmm. is going to be a big problem. Winding down the generosity of the UI system to push people back where they were is going to be a really, really tough thing to do. Yeah. And, and I know of um, some just situations where I know a lot of businesses currently are weighing the cost of laying off employees versus keeping them and, and, sort of making those decisions based off of could this employee be better off on unemployment insurance now than they would be um, if we kept them. Um, So is there a long-term effect within that? And and how, how does that get fixed later on? So, yeah, I think there's a lot, there's going to be a long-term hangover of this, right? I mean, it's going to be really hard for Congress to say when we come out of this, okay, and we look like we're ramping back up, it's gonna be really hard for Congress to say, okay, party's over, we're cutting out the UI generosity, and now you're back to this base level UI, which is not very generous, right? That's gonna be really tough to do unless you're sure that every person who's on UI can walk out and get a job tomorrow. And you're not gonna be sure of that, right? So politically, I just think it's going to be very tough to unwind that generosity. Now, the, I, I should say that Congress passed a second, part, a second part of the CARES Act, in addition to the UI generosity, was this loan slash grant to small businesses that were, was trying to incentivize those businesses to keep people on the payroll. And if mm-hmm. they kept people on the payroll, they could take a loan from the federal government that would turn into a grant. In other words, they wouldn't have to repay any of it, provided they could prove that at the end of June, they had the same number of employees as they had at the end of February, okay? But it turns out there are so many hoops to jump through in that part of the bill and so much red tape that it looks mm-hmm. really unlikely that a large number of small businesses in the U.S. are going to actually take advantage of that. And I just think it's a tragedy. 
Um, I think we made it too complicated. Again, it's hard to do this right, but we made it too complicated and we made it complicated in a way that small businesses are finding it, as you just said, it's much more lucrative for their employees to let them go and then promise we'll bring you back as soon as we can. Mm-hmm. Which is which is certainly not the optimal outcome. Um, so, and I guess this is a good segue in, into this next question. So from a broad point of view, do you feel as though policymakers answered the call with the stimulus package? Um, and what are the most integral parts and, and what are the parts where you feel it has fallen short, which we've already talked about a little bit? I mean, broadly speaking, yes, they answered the call. They recognized the gravity of the situation. They put out a bill that was, you know, roughly two and a half times what we spent in, in 2008. So they recognized that this is a legitimate threat to the overall functioning of the American economy. For that, they'd certainly get credit. And I know they didn't do it quite as quickly as people wanted them to, but I mean, Washington doesn't turn on a dime. It never has, right? So yes, I, thought it was, I thought it was pretty good in terms of speed. Um, the details, I don't love. Um, and I don't think there's any economist who really thinks that this was the right answer. It's an answer. It'll get us through. It's probably not going to get us through at the rate we could have gotten through had we chosen a different set of policies. Absolutely. Um, and do you feel like there was a significant, uh, there was significant help for small businesses aside from some of the things that we've already talked about? And, and do you feel that the, the bill has insured against the sort of situations where corporations will go stock buybacks. Um, You know, we have this politically right now, um, you know, we have this sort of like war on corporations, all corporations are bad. Um, And so that seemed to be a priority for the Democrats um, as well. So do you think the balance there um, seems to be sufficient? You know, I, I'm not an anti-corporate warrior, so you're not, you know, I'm not gonna be able to say much on this, but I will say that I, I don't, I, there are ways in which I think corporate America is not helping themselves here. And so one example of that is um, a couple of weeks ago before they finalized the CARES Act, there was this discussion about whether the federal government was going to take an, an equity stake in the companies that it was providing relief for, including, for example, Boeing. And the Mm -hmm. CEO of Boeing is quoted in a Reuters report as saying that, you know, if the government's going to insist on taking an equity stake, then just forget it. You can keep your money. We can get, we can get liquidity from somebody else. And that infuriated me. Uh Absolutely. The the government, like it is not our job to be the first line of support. It's our job to be the last line of support. Right. And so if you have other opportunities where you can get um, a low interest loan to help you ride through this storm, then by all means, right? Let's not look to Congress to be your, you know, your, your first lifeline. So I really, you know, it's stuff like that that really makes you think like, okay, what's the difference between a small business and a large business? And one of the differences between a small business and a large business is their equity, is there, is there access to, to capital? And that's true in any circumstance, crisis or no crisis, right? It's why we have all of this small business lending subsidized activity at the federal level anyway, is that small businesses struggle to get access. So in my opinion, the more important part of the bailout was not the Boeing airline um, mm-hmm. travel industry bailout. That wasn't important. Those people have access to lines of credit. It's the small business stuff that was more important. And it's where I'm worried we, that we really messed it up. Which is an interesting kind of 
juxtaposition of, of the politics in America right now, because a lot of young people, the, the more leftist politicians like Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, um, Bernie Sanders, were so focused on reining in corporations and preventing any sort of corporate benefit that it, it does seem that, that small businesses, the, the structure in the bill, they seem to be left out um, with regard I mean, to yeah, I think, you know, I think just in terms of money, I think what Congress did was they wrote down an amount, they, they wrote down a package for small businesses they, that they thought was reasonable. And I think if it turns out that I'm wrong and that businesses do take advantage of the loans that the, that the CARES Act um, offers that hopefully turn into grants. So if they do take advantage of that and Congress runs out of money in the CARES Act, I don't think there's any question that Congress will reconvene and pass an extension and put mm -hmm. more money in, in the bucket. So I don't, you know, I don't, I, I'm not suggesting that I think Congress spent too much on the big guys and not enough on the little guys. I'm just suggesting that I think the implementation of the little guy piece of legislation is not optimal and it's questionable whether it's going to get taken up. Yeah, a matter of, of structure and process that was sort of the failure, less so than, than the consideration. Um, so like you said, I, I know you worked a little bit on immigration at the Council of Economic Advisors. So I had someone who was interested in a question about, um, does this bill have any impact on undocumented immigrants um, and likewise green card holders? So my understanding, okay, I'm not the expert. My understanding is that undocumented immigrants have, because they have no interface with the federal government, with the IRS, have no, will receive no benefits in the legislation. They can't file for UI and they won't receive the $1,200 mm -hmm. check. If you're a green card holder, you can file for UI and you will receive the $1,200 check is my understanding. Um, I may be wrong about that, but we, my family is connected to some green card holders and they are expecting both to receive both UI and um, they're taxpayers, right? So they expect to receive both UI and, um, and the tax relief or the, the um, income relief. Yeah, it's my understanding that is if you have a social security number is sort of the, the baseline consideration. Um, so another sort of um, parallel question to that, um, but not focused on immigration. Um, there's been a lot of talk on campuses um, and amongst young people about why the bill left out payments to college students, many of which um, struggle with day-to-day -day expenses um, and live paycheck to paycheck. Uh, why do you think that is? Well, they left them out because they've been counted as dependents. <laughs> I mean, that's, that's, that's the basic answer is that, you know, the, the way that treasury is going to get money to you is, is a reflection of how you have interacted with IRS in the past. And so college students typically are still claimed as dependents on their parents' tax returns and therefore don't have an individual separate interaction with IRS. Um, now, Congress could have said that the $500 per child applies to those above, above the age of 17 who were counted as dependents. Um, they didn't do that. I think they, I don't know why. I mean, it's one, it's one way of saving money here. Um, I think also perhaps it just opens a whole can of worms about who's a dependent, who's legitimate in this, who's not, you know, so I think they just didn't want to go there and they felt like those under age 17 aren't capable of supporting themselves and therefore the $500 arrives. 
Yeah, yeah which question, just sort of the, the argument that has been made amongst um, some young, young people is that they're being counted as dependents when they're not really dependents. Um, it's hard to know the <laughs> validity of that argument. Um, but it, it is interesting nonetheless, and, and I uh, personally know some, some instances where that has been an issue. So um, it's definitely an interesting part of the bill. Um, so is there anything else that you have to say about the stimulus package before we move on? Any broad overview thoughts about it? Don't call it a stimulus package. <laughs> <laughs> it's not a stimulus package. You can't stimulate this economy right? There's no shopping to be done. There's no spending to be done, right? Mm -hmm. it's, a it's a relief package. It's a package that's designed to help people shelter in place without losing their incomes. Then we're not trying to stimulate anything because if we mm -hmm. do, we're going to worsen the health issues, right? So mm -hmm. that's it. That's my, that's my only comment. <laughs> Amazing. Um, so move on a little bit and, and just talk about how COVID-19 is going to impact the global economy, um, the world. There's been a lot of talk of will COVID-19 be the end of globalization as we know it. Um, and so I'm curious as to your thoughts of, of in looking at globalization and, and what that has meant for the world, um, where do you feel like the global integration has succeeded during the COVID-19 epidemic and where do you think it has failed most? I mean, I think a great example is probably the WHO, um, but I'm curious as to your opinion. Um, good question. I mean, I think that, first of all, I don't think this is the end of globalization. I think we will, if we're supposed to be ratcheting back on globalization, I think we're gonna have to learn that lesson more than once <laughs> to make it happen because the benefits of globalization are so great. So one pandemic, I don't think, is gonna knock us out of our current equilibrium. I feel the same way about online teaching, <laughs> that yeah. it, the benefits of in-person teaching are so great that one pandemic is not gonna knock us to a new equilibrium. Now, if this happens more than once in 10 years, then I'm willing to discuss whether we are in a new equilibrium. Um, but I think for now, we will, as quickly as we can, revert to normal in all senses, um, mm -hmm. both domestically and globally. I think what, is, what has become clear in all of this, though, is that the people who you don't think are telling you the truth aren't telling you the truth. And they're mm -hmm. not telling you the truth in any circumstance. And you know, our national security people have been telling us for years, don't trust what they say in coming out of the Chinese government and don't trust what they say coming out of the Russian government, right? The official statistics are not true. And mm -hmm. they've known that and economists have largely listened. And I think policymakers have largely listened. And so I'm not sure why when all of this came to a head in Wuhan in January, I'm not sure why we thought the numbers that they were telling us were true, um, given what we know about the state. Right. Mm -hmm. And it, and it disturbs me to think that anybody who was modeling the U.S. pandemic at CDC took those numbers at face value. I'm I'm mm -hmm. hoping that no one did. I'm concerned that a few may have. 
Um, so I think that's our biggest lesson is that we, you know, trust and verify. <laughs> um, and, and people who've proven they're not trustworthy and, and aren't telling you the truth, then, you know, don't trust them. And I think the U.S., I mean, I think what's so beautiful about what's happening in the U.S. right now is that you and I might disagree on what the right policy response is, but I don't think we disagree on the actual numbers. We might disagree about the forecast, mm-hmm. but we don't disagree about how many people have test positive for the, for the coronavirus in this country, how many people have died from it, um, at least to, at least to a rough approximation, we agree because we we believe our public health statistics. Absolutely, and and just an aside, I would like to just give a shout out to the Tennessee Department of Health. There's been some controversy, but they've been great about getting data out um, county by county, um, very quickly, age distribution. So they've done a really good job, and and we have at a national level. Um, but going back to that uh, conversation, uh, I, you bring up China, which is an interesting point for for me because um, the trade war um, was a huge thing for most of the year. Um, and I'm curious how, to what extent there will be a response um, from the U.S. to sort of punish China for the early parts of this pandemic, because one, numbers were not correct, um, and two, there, there's some reports out there um, that they actively tried to hide this um, and destroyed certain things. So we couldn't have them and we couldn't figure it out. And so what do you think will be the future of that relationship, given that we are so dependent on China for a lot of goods? Um, but it, it, some of the things that China has done throughout the course of this, this pandemic have been on the line of egregious. So I don't think there's going to be an explicit cost you know, I don't think I don't think we're going to reconvene Congress in the fall and then they're going to sit down and write a bill that punishes China. I don't think that's the way this works out. I think the implicit cost is that there's a club of, of, of countries in the world who trust each other. Right. And and China's not in the club and they weren't before and they're really not now. Um, so, you know, this president has been, I think, quite vocal about that they're not in the club. (laughs) Um, Mm -hmm. and previous presidents have maybe not been quite so vocal about it. I think the bigger question is how, you know, what's the relationship between China and countries like the UK going to be after this? Um, Mm -hmm. so if you will remember, it seems like eons ago, but not that long ago, we were having conversations about Chinese technology access to different countries. And the, the United States had requested that the UK limit access to certain mm-hmm. technology providers coming out of China. And the UK decided not to do that. Um, and uh, very much against our wishes, right? And so there appears to be a kind of thawing of relationship between the UK and China, at least before this happened. And so I think that's the interesting thing to watch after it happens is do other countries take on this more hawkish approach, much like this current president has taken on? Um, my guess is yes. And that's the implicit cost, right? Is that people just don't want to work with you and feel like they can't trust you given what just went down um, with the coronavirus. Yeah. And it's quite interesting too, because part of their response has been sort of a power play or just a game the system where they bought themselves time by denying some of the statistics to where they were able to help some European countries during the like kind of peak of their crises and um, 
it's been clear that China has used a global pandemic as a way to leverage their strength. Um, well, and I think it's been comical to see people say like, oh, what you're going to see is people diversify their supply chain so that they're not so at risk in China, which 100% misses the point. The point mm-hmm. is that if China, if we think that outbreaks are, are more likely to start in China than other places, okay? So that's, a, that's an assumption. It's not an assumption I necessarily believe. Let's suppose you believe that, okay? And then that's your reasoning for diversifying your supply chain. It's almost moronic because the place where the pandemic starts is also the place that has the advantage in getting it under control. And we're seeing that right now. And it's every other country surrounding China where you might think about diversifying your supply chain that's suffering. <laughs> um, mm-hmm. And in the U.S., I mean, think about Apple, right? The story two months ago was that, gosh, Apple's going to have to do something about the fact that their supply chain is concentrated in China. Apple's problems right now have nothing to do with the concentration of the supply chain in China and everything to do with the fact that this virus has now spread all over the world and has affected consumer spending everywhere. Right. And so mm-hmm. if you're Apple, the lesson you learned from this is not, oh, gosh, we got to get some factories that aren't in Wuhan. That is not the answer. Um, and so it was just a really I just think a really narrow minded view at the beginning of this that like, oh, we're all going to learn our lesson and we're going to move our factories out of China somewhere else. We're all susceptible. That's the definition of a pandemic. Yeah, I mean, it is just interesting. And, and I, I still to this day sort of question some of the the information that's coming out of China. Um, even now, I mean, there's, there's um, Hong Kong has lifted some of their lockdown measures and have seen a reemergence of cases, um, which is sort of what the research suggests will be the case, um, and largely hasn't been the case in China thus far, um, which is, is just a curious, um, thing. So I wonder how there can't be a response to something that has been a really long history of lying um, and has ultimately come at the cost of lives. Yeah, but again, I think if you look at it from the perspective of a a profit-maximizing multinational, right, I don't think there's anything about this pandemic that would cause you to change the way you the way you invest in China in particular. Now you might think about doing more inventory planning, or you might you know you, you might carry more inventory because you think there may be another pandemic. But the idea that you're going to leave China and go somewhere else, I mean, manufacturing in the U.S. is shut down. Um, mm-hmm. So it's not there's there's no reason to think that moving your factories to the U.S. is going to somehow protect you from the next pandemic. It's not. And any government response would foreseeably have some some opposition from those those very companies based off their own situation, which is is reasonable. Um, so moving on, and just the last question about coronavirus: um, What do you think is the best scenario, um, the best case um, for for the end and the the course of of coronavirus? So I have been saying now for weeks (laughs) um, that we're not going back to normal unless one of three things happens, okay? We either have a vaccine, which we think is 12 to 18 months out, or we have widespread testing. And by widespread, I mean at home and cheap enough that Americans can afford to do it every other day. Or we have some sort of treatment 
therapeutic um, for coronavirus, much like Tamiflu. And, and the, the treatment has to be a good one. In other words, you have to be able to get a treatment that keeps you from going to the hospital at all. If the treatment mm -hmm. is something that has to be administered in the hospital, then it doesn't help us because we, we're going to have capacity constraints. So if one of those three things happens, then we can go back to work. Until then, I think we're stuck where we are. Um, so I don't think a vaccine is going to show up in time for us to go back to normal in August. I think it's, you know, it's somewhat likely that we get this sort of widespread testing that we need by August. And I think it's somewhat likely that we get a good therapeutic by August. Mm. Um, but those are aggressive timelines in both of those latter two cases. And I think there's a significant chance that what happens is this virus kind of dies out a little bit at the end of the summer. And people feel like, okay, we're good. And then it comes roaring back in September or October. And we're right back where we were before. Mm -hmm. Again, unless we have a therapeutic um, or widespread testing. Yeah. And, and the, so, you know, the vaccine is sort of at least 12 to 18 months out. That's what most of the research would say. Um, but the testing was capability seems to have been in our hands. Um, do you think we would be in a completely different situation had we started ramping up um, production of testing kits in, say, late January, early February? Well, I don't know that we'd be in a completely different situation. I mean, I think we would be in a different situation. Um, I still think, you know, there's still 350 some odd million Americans who mm -hmm. need to be tested every other day. So this is still a massive undertaking. Mm -hmm. um, and I, it's, not, it's not obvious to me that even with another month's head start, that that's the point we would be at at this juncture, right? Um, so in fact, I'm pretty sure it's not the point we would be at. Mm -hmm. So testing takes time. And the tests that are out right now are, uh, you know, again, there's some concern they're not super accurate. And they're taking a very long time to process. So if you fast forward a month, okay, so it's, you know, April 2nd, let's look forward on May 2nd, are we going to have, you know, nationwide instantaneous testing? No, probably not. Which means that had we gotten a month's head start, we wouldn't be at nationwide instantaneous testing right now. Um, I think under any circumstance, the rollout of testing was going to be, was going to be slower than we needed it to be to keep the economy from kind of suffering the current, uh, the current issues that it's suffering. Amazing. Um, so we're going to move on to some questions from listeners um, and do these and, and should be some interesting um, thoughts. So the first question is, what are your thoughts on automatic stabilizers when the economy is nearing in a, or in a recession? Should stimulus payments be sent out based on predetermined criteria? Uh, great question. So the comment, my comment earlier that Washington doesn't turn on a dime is exactly the reason why automatic stabilizers are so popular, at least in theory. And what an automatic stabilizer would have done in this case, in theory, again, is to say, I see this massive disaster coming. I'm going to flip this switch right here. Now, they come in different flavors. One potential flavor is that all you need Congress to do is to declare it a national recession or a national emergency, and then it goes, right? Um, where, it, where that argument sort of breaks down, though, is that are, are all recessions the same? Am I going to write down a response that's the same in all cases? Um, this, is a, this is what I hope is a once-in-a-lifetime event for us. 
so almost certainly the response I wrote down, you know, I'm going to send every household $500 is not the mm -hmm. right answer in this case. And so it has, it's got to be flexible. And if you envision a policy that's flexible, it's got to be data-based. It's got to say like, well, you get $100 for every point of GDP we expect to see a decline mm -hmm. in, right? But remember that we're not going to know the data for what we're experiencing right now for another six weeks. So, it, you know, it's just really hard to imagine a policy that you could write down that could be an objective statement about if X, then Y, that makes any sense in the current situation. Everything we're spent, everything Congress is spending is based on some projection about what's going to happen in the future, not about what we see in the numbers right this second. Um, and so I like the idea of automatic stabilizers, but again, the devil's in the details. And how could you have written a policy that would say, yes, if you see a pandemic coming, send everybody 1500 bucks, right? That's just not a thing mm -hmm. that we can legislate very well. Absolutely. Um, so the next one is interesting and might be something that you have um, insight into and might not, but um, if they start to develop a vaccine that seems promising, but has not completely gone through testing protocol, um, do you foresee they'll waive certain safety guidelines to protect threatened populations? And to some extent, we've already seen this with some of the experimental medicines and, and some of the legislation that was in response to Ebola. But um, what are your thoughts on that? So I think what we're seeing on vaccines is that everything is flexible except the safety testing. So you cannot, you can't inoculate the entire planet and not know whether the thing you're inoculating them with is safe mm -hmm. or not, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, even if it has a 2% mortality rate, like you just killed millions of people. So you can't do that. Um, so instead, what I think is likely to happen is that Congress is going to anoint, or the federal government is ultimately going to anoint several promising vaccines and give them either price guarantees, price and quantity guarantees, okay, or just flat out give, hand them a check and say, I want you, in the case of the U.S., I want you to produce 350 million of those. If it turns out, and, and go ahead and start doing that before the safety testing is done, if it turns out that you fail the safety test, the risk is on the federal government and not on the lab mm -hmm. or on the, the pharmaceutical company, right? And then you know, at the end of the day, you know, the odds that all three of these fail safety tests is really low. So you've either got 350 million, you've got 700 million, or you have mm -hmm. 1 billion. <laughs> okay. And if you have a billion, great. You can maybe sell them to your friends elsewhere in the world. Right. So I think that's probably what you're going to see happen. Absolutely. Um, so the next one is, what is the typical interaction between a chief domestic economist at CEA and the president? And uh, to your knowledge, what ex to what extent has that role changed in recent history? Yeah, so um, I'm the, I was the first chief domestic economist at, at CEA. So um, the, the structure over there is, um, it has been evolving. Um, I think in part because the chairman who was in place when I was there, a guy named Kevin Hassett, is a super flat organizational structure guy. Who just <laughs> returned. Like, yeah, he just, he's back. Um, he didn't like the way that the pyramid was working. And so he was putting people in different jobs um, and felt like in many cases that warranted a change in title. So at the moment, I actually think there, there are three or four chief economists over there, um, which is, um, which again, is just a reflection of leadership. 
Um, my interaction with the president was incredibly limited. Um, I, I think I was in the room with him maybe three times. Um, and so, you know, it's not, you, it's really hard to be in the room with the president. You've got to be a lot mm -hmm. higher valued than just the chief domestic economist. Good question. Yeah. <laughs> um, so uh, another question is um, that we can spend a little bit on is, is how do we overcome um, the fake news narrative that has sort of arise from, and, and I don't really like the the framing that this is only a Donald Trump thing, um, because it, it seems to extend it across party lines um, in many different ways. Um, but how do you see us going back to the, the spin zone rather than the deny the facts and, and in a lot of cases just sort of straight up falsities okay wait so asking the question again so how do you think we overcome the fake news narrative and sort of get back to that that period okay. of politics where where politicians would spin things but it it wasn't so far as like let's just deny this is real or okay. All right, good. Okay. So, well, actually, I think as it turns out, pandemics are perfect for solving fake news problems. Yeah. I, <laughs> right? Yeah. Right? Like, a very good point, response. At some point, right, there's, there's no way that any rational, sane individual can deny that we're in the middle of a pandemic. Okay. So, mm -hmm. you know, I, um, I have friends who occupy all parts of the political spectrum. And, and I do mean all parts. And even those who, th those who I thought would be the last ones to be, to, to, to play along here are playing along, meaning mm -hmm. they're staying at home. They're not going to work. They're taking this seriously. They're making personal sacrifices. Um, so I think in a weird way, the pandemic has kind of helped us through this a little bit. What I worry about to some extent is that this pandemic ends up being felt in terms of personal sacrifice by mm -hmm. only parts of the political spectrum. In other words, if this remains a California, New York thing, which I don't think it's going to, mm -hmm. but if it does, um, then I think that's, that's, that, that pushes us apart, right? Um, I, I don't think that's what's gonna happen. I think you, know, you, see, you see plenty of evidence that we have problems in New Orleans and Nashville. And so I think what we'll end up having a very much a sense of shared sacrifice in this fight by the time it's mm -hmm. over. And I think, although there's a lot of of lives lost and personal suffering in that, I think there's a lot of good just in terms of a common experience that helps remind us that we are all in the end Americans and we face the same enemies 99% of the time. Absolutely. And, and it is interesting. Um, the, the impact of uh, coronavirus is, is sort of, equal but not equal um, in many ways. So it will be interesting how that plays out politically. But um, moving forward, it, it's just interesting to see, um, you know, I, I see the, the fake news sort of thing in a, in a long-term view and what does that mean just in our, for our ability to, to for there to be reasoned political discourse. Um, I mean, anytime you watch presidential debates, it's, it's a lot of the times really not about our like factual arguments. It, it's sort of up in the air. So um, I, I'm interested to see what, how that continues on. Um, but 
nonetheless very interesting. Um, so before I let you go and we finish up, I have some rapid fire questions for you. Um, so a quick response. Um, Elizabeth Warren, is she as scary as people say she is? Who asked that question? Um, somebody who knows the story. No, she's not as scary as people say she is. So one of my, one of my favorite moments in the White House was when um, my boss and I went to go visit Elizabeth Warren on a mission from the president. And um, we had the best time. She's in person just the nicest, most congenial, comfort-giving person you could imagine. She doesn't come across that way on TV at all, um, mm -hmm. but she, she's a person-to-person -person politicker. She's really good at it, and we had a really great, we had a really great meeting. Which it's interesting you say that because uh, there has, I, I've met some people who, um, some former U.S. ambassadors who had worked under Secretary Clinton um, and have some like very similar things to say about mm -hmm. Secretary Clinton and say that she had an open door policy, always remembered everyone's family member and their names and what was going on in their life. So, so interesting. Um, what was your favorite and least favorite White House moment? <laughs> um, oh, gosh. Uh... Favorite was probably getting tax reform passed. Um, even if I didn't love the final lit version of the legislation, just getting it over with was a, a, a gigantic <laughs> personal relief. Um, and there was lots of celebrating going on. Um, so that was really fun. What was my least favorite part? Um, you know, honestly, I think my least favorite part was the day I left my team, um, who you know, you don't mm -hmm. know, you love, and it's like a Peggy Noonan line, like, it's amazing how many people you don't know you love, right? But it <laughs> turns out that after you've gone through a year of such intense work and such intense stress, and you have really relied on your team to make you look good and to, to pull you out of the gutter when you needed it, um, then walking away from them and leaving them there to, to someone who was replacing me and was about to be their new leader and whom I didn't know very well, um, was just really hard. And I, I really- Absolutely. Yeah, I really hated that moment. Well, I was going to say the first time I ever met you, you were working at the White House. So I thought that would be your favorite day. <laughs> <laughs> it was a good one. It was a good one. Um, and last one, if you had to watch one cable news show every night, which one would it be? Oh, I, w I don't, I wouldn't watch cable news. But if you had to. But, I, but I'm not none. going to. But that's the point is that you need to turn it off. We all need to turn it off. Turn it off. It is not doing anything good for you. It's not informing you. It's outraging you. And it is, it is mm -hmm. designed to make you outraged. And you don't need that in your life. So consume your news in some other way, but turn the TV off. And so on that advice, we'll end it with one more piece of advice, which I presume you will agree with. But um, we will have to stay home as long as we don't, if we continue not staying home, the longer we'll have to stay home, um, which I'll let you have like a, a little word on that. Yeah, you know, I, um, I think my biggest thing is I have three family members who are fighting this on the front lines. And um, they, my, my sister and brother-in-law have young kids. They have a four-year-old and a seven-year-old. And they didn't ask for this. They don't deserve to have to do this. And so the sacrifices that they're making 
um, just in terms of the risk to their personal safety is gigantic. And you can make the sacrifice to sit at home and do nothing for, if you have to do it for six months, it'll be less than the sacrifice that they make every day. I agree. Well, that will wrap it up for the first episode of As It Stands, the podcast. I hope you'll join us on the next episode. But Dr. Wanamaker, thank you so much for being here. Thanks for having me. Thank you for tuning in to the series premiere of As It Stands. As It Stands is brought to you by The Daily Beacon, the editorial independent student newspaper of the University of Tennessee, and your host, Hanson Sale. A special thanks to Evan Newell, Austin Orr, the Howard H. Baker Jr. Center for Public Policy, and the Coronavirus-19 Outbreak Response Experts team at the University of Tennessee. For up-to-date information about COVID-19 and its impact on Tennessee, visit core19.utk.edu. I hope you enjoyed the show. Remember to read widely, practice social distancing, and join me for the next episode of As It Stands. I hope you have a great week, and I'll see you soon.